where the guide is dressed up and there is a lot of kitschy stuff going on, we avoid that. It's a shallow narration of uh, the complex history of this huge disappeared country that was the former USSR. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Soviet Tours is a Berlin-based tour operator focused on the -the off-the-beaten-path destinations across the globe. Their core area, as the name suggests, lies mainly in and around the former USSR from the mystic forests of central Siberia to the austere peaks of the High Caucasus, and from the scorching deserts of the Soviet stands to the windswept steppes of southern Russia. We talk with the founder of Soviet Tours, Jean-Luca Pardelli. He is a Berlin-based photojournalist, adventurer and travel author who is fascinated by that enigmatic country that was once known as the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can show your support via a monthly donation via Patreon. Plus, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear from Tim Slansky, one of our supporters. I'm Tim from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially because the great research and the quality of the storytelling. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. There's further information about Soviet tours in our show notes, which will be showing as a link in your podcast app. If you do get in touch with Soviet tours, do let them know that Cold War Conversations was where you heard about them. I'm delighted to welcome Jean-Luca to our Cold War Conversation. I come from uh, Italy, but um, I have been living uh, in Berlin for the last uh, uh, 10 years with some uh, uh, breaks and pauses in between. Um, I studied uh, photojournalism and uh, Slavic languages, both in Germany and in the UK. And my background, my professional background is uh, in the photojournalism and journalism field. I've been working as a photojournalist for the last uh, 10 years, covering uh, both social issues uh, and conflict zones, such as Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and Syria. And uh, since uh, 2017, I have been running uh, my own tour operator company, which is called uh, Soviet Tours. And uh, as the name suggests, uh, mainly focused uh, around the former Soviet Union, which is also my main interest uh, uh, in uh, other fields of my life, exactly like uh, Slavic languages. And uh, also my, most of my photo reportages are from the former Soviet Union. So the company is uh, directly connected to my own uh, personal and uh, academic and professional interests. 
and and your portfolio of photos are stunning i mean they they really bring some of the uh, tours that you offer to life thank you very much i i am actually very lucky to have uh, that background because uh, it helped me a lot uh, first uh, to understand the countries that i'm offering to through my company and to offer also itineraries that are not uh, uh, classical touristic itineraries. All the itineraries you find on my website, on my company website, are designed personally by me and are conceived by me. So based on my previous experiences as a photojournalist and traveler. And the second big advantage of having a photojournalist background is, of course, uh, uh, a promotional um, um, Plus, because I can use my own photographic material uh, to promote uh, the tours uh, of my tour company. Yeah. So how did you first become interested in in the Soviet Union? Well, it's uh, a long love story that, uh, I mean, my interest in the former Soviet Union uh, is now 360 degree and uh, it's, uh, it's really hard to to find something I don't like or I'm not interested in, in about the former Soviet Union. It started like an interest, then it grows, uh, it grew into a passion, and then uh, now it's uh, just a blind love. But uh, it all started when it was uh, around six or seven, and uh, I learned to read uh, when it was four or five. And then when I was six uh, and or seven, I don't remember exactly. So let's say around that age, my father brought me to a bookshop and uh, in a very, very fatherly tone say to me, okay, now it's time for you to choose uh, your first uh, book from the bookshop. Now you have learned to read like one or two years ago. Now you can choose your own book. And probably was expecting me to choose uh, a children's book. But I don't know why my eyes uh, uh, running through the different titles uh, stopped uh, at one particular book, which is called uh, This Step, The Endless Russian Landscape. And it's a book of uh, Anton Chekhov, uh, by Anton Chekhov, famous Russian writer of uh, the 90, late 19th century. And of course, it was a like a grown-up book or like a book for adults, not for children. But I still chose uh, chose that book, and uh, I became uh, immediately fascinated with uh, this uh, endless uh, Russian landscape and uh, the poetry be- behind it uh, that uh, that it was transmitting. And uh, from that moment on, it just grew. It just grew. It became an interest also for history, then for the language. I studied the Russian language uh, and, uh, and then everything else, music, cinema, politics. Uh, and then the travels came, uh, the, my own personal uh, adventure in the former Soviet Union. That, of course, came much later in my life. I mean, when I was 17, 18 but uh, even before I studied, I started studying the language, the, the culture, the literature, the cinema, and so on. So th- this this has been a a love affair for quite some time, then. Exactly, exactly. I mean, now I'm 32. If you if you say I it started at seven, uh, if we agree it starts at seven, and then it's uh, like 25 years, 
And if it started at six, it's 26. I, don't, I really don't remember when I bought the first book, but it was around that age. I think what, what I found really interesting about Soviet tours is that you're not like a regular travel company. It's really safe to say you do go way off the beaten track, but also you're not offering what I would say kitschy tour experiences. You're offering a much more genuine experience. Can you just elaborate on that for me? Yeah, you are perfectly right. And uh, I'm glad uh, that uh, this uh, comes true <laughs> uh, because that's exactly uh, the nature of my company and the nature of the tours uh, I offer. Um, yeah, first of all, they are really off the beaten track, uh, not just because uh, they are uh, mainly uh, centered uh, in countries. Uh, I mean, we travel to countries, regions, and places that receive uh, little to zero tourist uh, foreign tourists per year. So that's the first uh, aspect why these uh, tour, uh, tours are so unusual, because we just travel to places that few people go to. But even those places, I mean, we also offer places that are slightly more touristic, like former Yugoslavia or uh, some parts of Russia. I mean, they do receive a lot of tourists, or Ukraine, for example. But within those countries, we offer uh, routes and itineraries that are really unusual, that are focused on uh, uh, Soviet heritage, Soviet history, but also on uh, um, non-contrived, uh, genuine encounters with the locals. Um, so it's fair to say we have uh, two main focuses on our tours. So the first focus is the Soviet heritage. Uh, and these two focuses uh, also reflect my main two interests uh, in the former Soviet Union, because uh, I, I, I like, as I said, I like almost everything of the former Soviet Union. But of course, I have uh, some, uh, um, there, is, there are some uh, elements that I prioritize in my interests and preference. So the first is uh, the Soviet heritage. So everything that uh, is related to the cultural and art artistic er heritage of the former Soviet Union. So architecture, monuments, uh, mosaics, uh, uh, urban landscape, but also uh, history and culture. So that's the first aspect. But also we like to focus uh, on ethnic diversity, traditions, and also the unseen and genuine side of a country. For example, we like to go, uh, instead of uh, going to, let's say, touristic places, we like to go to the open-air markets, uh, vegetable markets, meat markets, and so on, where uh, only the locals go shopping in this country, luckily, farmer markets are not something where only hipster goes, but it's a place full of locals, full of old people still shopping there with all these open-air food stalls and so on. And so this is markets, for example, food markets is something that we never miss during our tour. If you read our itineraries, there is always included a visit to a food market. And as a photojournalist, I even made a project about food markets in the former Soviet Union, which is called uh, Babushkas and Bazaar. Babushkas are the, the, it means grandmother in Russian. And in a, in a food market uh, in the former Soviet Union, you can see it all. You can see the genuinity and the reality of, of, of a place, uh, the ethnic diversity, because it's full of different people in a, in a food market. Uh, 
and uh, yes, the real face uh, of a country. And uh, you are also right when you say we strongly, really strongly, tend to avoid uh, um, stereotypes and cliches and also kitschy stuff. So we don't do dress-ups, even if we focus uh, on the on the former Soviet Union, on the Soviet heritage, we bring, uh, we show people uh, the actual Soviet heritage. So the mosaics, the architecture, the monument, but we don't do like dress up like our guide, don't dress like Soviet soldier or KGB officer, uh, officers, uh, stuff you can. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. See somewhere around the former Soviet Union, especially in the Baltics or in Ukraine, there are these kind of uh, experiences uh, or, or open-air museums uh, or... Uh, uh, tours around the former KGB prisons and so on, where the guide is dressed up and there is a lot of kitschy stuff going on. We avoid that. We don't really like that. And also, it's kind of uh, uh, shallow, in my opinion. It's a shallow narration of uh, the complex history of this huge disappeared country that was the former USSR. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that, and I think that that is makes you so distinct. And I th- I think that the other thing I I I liked was obviously you're you're trying to help the locals as well, but but not make them dependent on on tourism. So, for example, you you tell people on the tour not to pay locals for photos or or things like that. I think. Yes, that's something uh, came from my profession. As a photojournalist, uh, I, uh, I've never paid someone um, to, have, uh, to take a picture of him or her. Um, it's uh, kind of a taboo in photojournalists, actually. It's a really a no-no, even if a lot of photojournalists do pay their subject. But this is not a, actually a big issue in the in issue in the former Soviet Union. In the former USSR, nobody will ask you money to get a picture of them. Uh, it can happen maybe a little bit in Central Asian country, but it's uh, always uh, a little bit of a joke. I mean, they they, they, they ask you so, but in a in a, in a funny tone. Uh, rarely they mean that serious. Actually, sometimes happen the contrary. People are not because these places are not touristic. So when they see someone taking picture of them, they are really either glad or just suspicious. Most, most of the time, they are just happy to have a picture of them. And they, it will never come up to their mind to ask you money for that. Um, 
actually sometimes as I was saying it's the contrary they will ask you if they have to pay you <laughs> to have a picture of them taken it happened me to me so many times in really remote places in the former USSR that never see any tourist at all beside uh, my clients I would say and they sometimes the local people will generally ask you if they have to pay you to have uh, to have a picture of them taken and uh, that's uh, something that happens in places that are untouched by tourism and where this concept of uh, uh, getting paid for photography doesn't exist. And uh, this is much more of a problem in uh, other kind of developing countries that have been uh, um, affected by mass tourism. It's a big problem in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and uh, in India as well. In the former Soviet Union, it's really rarely a problem. Only in Uzbekistan, which is a country which is fairly touristic, it can happen that local people in Samarkand um, will ask you for money if you have a picture of them taken. But as I said, it's all, all, most of the time they are not meaning that seriously. If you're enjoying the content, please consider a monthly donation to support us. You'll get a free Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're preserving Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Now, back to today's episode. What I wanted to do was just go into some of the the tours that caught my eye and you know particularly some some of the titles are quite are quite grabbing but you talk about some of the remote autonomous republics how many autonomous republics were there so um basically an autonomous republic so just to under, let uh, your listener uh, listeners understand what we are talking about um as everybody knows the former soviet union uh, uh, is not uh, synonymous to russia Russia was just one of the 15 constituent republics of the former Soviet Union. Even if uh, often in the journalistic narration, Russia and Soviet Union was, were used as uh, synonymic terms, but of course Russia was just uh, one, one of the 15 republics, so only one part of, of, the, of the immense Soviet state. And uh, by now, uh, 30 years after the dissolution of the former Soviet Union, Almost everybody is uh, well aware of that, uh, that there are uh, 14 countries uh, besides Russia that belong to the former Soviet Union, so Georgia, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, Latvia, Lithuania, and so on. But the interesting thing is that within these countries, let's call these countries first-level Soviet republics, because these, were, these are now independent countries, but before they were first-level Soviet republics. So Russia, Lithuania, Belarus, Turkmenistan, and so on were first-level Soviet republics. And within these republics, or at least within some of these republics, there were autonomous regions, autonomous republics, that we could call second-level republics, that were created on an ethnic base. So within these republics, especially Russia, because Russia was so big, I mean, it was just one of the Soviet republics, but it was the biggest one, there were a lot of ethnic minorities, of course. And some of these ethnic minorities 
got their own autonomous republics within the Soviet Republic they belong to. To make a clearer example we, in the European Union, we can compare that to the autonomous region like Catalonia in Spain or uh, uh, South Tyrol in northern Italy that are inhabited by a particularly ethno-linguistic minority. So the Catalan in Catalonia and the German-speaking community in South Tyrol in Italy. And so uh, in Russia, nowadays, there are 21 autonomous republics plus one. And I say plus one because the, the last autonomous republic is a bit uh, controversial because we are speaking about Crimea. So as we all know, Crimea joined uh, the Russian Federation uh, five, six years ago. De facto, Crimea is now part of Russia Federation, regardless of what we think about that. And it's part of Russian Federation as an autonomous republic. And then there are autonomous republics also within other countries of the former Soviet Union, like in Uzbekistan, there is an autonomous republic called Karakal Pakistan, where the Aral Sea is. And uh, in Tajikistan, in the eastern part, uh, it's not an autonomous republic, but it's an autonomous region and it's called the Gorno Badakhshan Autonomous Region. So there are many examples like this. But if we focus on Russia, there are uh, uh, three main regions, four, sorry, four main regions uh, where autonomous republics are concentrated. One is the North Caucasus, where the most uh, ethnically diverse autonomous republics are. So like uh, a very famous example is Chechnya, Dagestan, Ossetia, and so on. Then there is the North, like where there is Karelia near Finland or the Komi Republic. Then there is the Volga region, uh, where a lot of uh, Muslim and uh, uh, Finno-Ugric republics are, the most famous of which is uh, Tatarstan, the land of the Tatars. And then there is uh, Siberia, where the Mongolic autonomous republics are. One famous example is uh, Altai, or maybe Buryatia, where Lake Baikal is. It's very, very complex. It's uh, much easier to explain uh, with a map before your eyes. But I think uh, at least one of these autonomous republics uh, is known, uh, unfortunately, by everyone, and that's indeed the Chechnya. And so you probably know, Ian, that the war in Chechnya was exactly because Chechnya was, and now still is, an autonomous republic. But the war broke out because Chechnya said... Uh, Autonomy is not enough for us. We want full independence. And Moscow said no. And you, you offer tours to uh, Chechnya as well. Yes, yes. Nowadays, Chechnya is actually very, very, very safe. Even if the FCO and other government uh, travel advisors say don't travel to Chechnya, it's, in my opinion, uh, very, very distant from reality and it's politically motivated i guess because uh, government travel advisory is generally paranoid and over like uh, an over-attentive mother and i understand that that's fine and uh, usually there is uh, some uh, uh, truth in their advices for most of the countries even if they are overtly paranoid and too much uh, on the safe side, but usually there is some truth on, on their, in their advices. But when they say don't travel to Chechnya, it's completely 
false, uh, in my opinion, because I've been there so many times, and uh, the fact that it's compared to Afghanistan on, a, on an official level, it doesn't make any sense at all. So I would say most of the people that join these kind of tours are genuinely interested uh, in the former Soviet heritage from a cultural and uh, an artistic point of view. Uh, and the decay comes along as a side effect, as I was saying. However, there are some people that are uh, really into that aspect, that are really into the uh, decaying and crumbling uh, uh, aspect, facade of the former Soviet Union. And these are usually photographers, like uh, Urbex photographer, people that like to take picture, pictures of stuff crumbling down and uh, a little bit run down buildings and so on. But for us, uh, it's not the main... Uh, uh, main attraction actually it's uh, quite sad to see these buildings uh, in such status if we could we would restore them to their former beauty i mean it's not something that uh, attract us i noted that you'd also expanded into africa so you have a tour called red africa as well as one to angola yes exactly one of my biggest uh, interests uh, you probably have uh, already inferred from this conversation is architecture and especially socialist era architecture and uh, during uh, the cold war uh, cold war uh, period well, the former soviet union but also the former yugoslavia and uh, other warsaw pact uh, pact countries uh, so eastern bloc countries participated in developing, especially urban developing projects uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and uh, partially also in Asia, but especially in sub-Saharan Africa. So you can see a lot of uh, African cities uh, that have, uh, that feature a lot of um, urban patterns and uh, buildings that are very similar to those uh, you can find in Russia or Ukraine or Poland, even if uh, there are some differences that are um, that are dependent from the specific conditions of the country we are talking about. And there is a very, very good book uh, uh, by Lukas Stanek, which is a Polish uh, writer, and it's called uh, Architecture in Global Socialism. And the author uh, explores the relationship between uh, Eastern European and Soviet architecture, architects and urban developers and their uh, African counterparts. And uh, it's a very interesting uh, relation and the results are still uh, admirable today. And so we run a tour. So we run, yeah, we run a tour uh, in West Africa and we run a tour in Angola to admire uh, the legacy of the former Soviet Union and the former Eastern Bloc in this country. How do you source your your guides in the former Soviet Union and also in places like Africa? How, how do you find people who can show those sites? So 95% of the tours uh, I offer to my company are uh, in places where I have been uh, personally. I have travelled personally before in these countries and so I met and therefore I met a lot of people while traveling there and I met the guides personally I find I found them initially through internet uh, I, I mean I have various uh, channels to find guides I'm not gonna 
reveal uh, every trick of my no don't worry <laughs> of my profession <laughs> but uh, basically it's internet social networks and so on but then of course i need to meet them in person uh, and that's uh, why most of the destinations i offer with a few exceptions very few exceptions are places that uh, i've been personally before I, I was quite intrigued by some of your short tours because I think most of your tours are 10 days or so, but you do short four or five day tours. For example, you do Kaliningrad and the Bi- the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, most of the standard tours are between a minimum of one week to a maximum of three weeks so the, the the average length is 10 days but then we have a shorter tours for people that are that don't have so much time at their disposal for their holiday or just because there are places that are easily seen in four or five days one of them is, is indeed this Kaliningrad which is a fairly small area of the Russian Federation completely detached from the main Russian territory. It's this uh, exclave of the Russian Federation sandwiched uh, between Poland and Lithuania on the Baltic Sea. The other one, as you mentioned, is the Baikonur Cosmodrome, which is a place you go in basically just to see the Cosmodrome and, uh, if you are lucky, the rocket launch. Uh, Other places, uh, for example, are... um, I don't know, I have there uh, Birobijan, which is a Jewish... uh, Uh, autonomous region uh, in Siberia and it's fairly small and you can see that in three days uh, or even less to be honest and so these places uh, are really that doesn't really make any sense to offer long tour there long tours there unless you really want to go deep 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 into the culture of this place which is also could be also interesting but it's not what average client you also run volunteer programs, don't you, in some of the locations? Yeah, actually, this is one of my primary goals at the beginning. Now it has uh, uh, dwindled a little bit because uh, because also of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, most of these programs are suspended. Uh, but at, at the beginning, when I created my tour company, having also a volunteer program uh, section was really important for me to give something back uh, to the communities that hosted me personally during my trips. So, of course, I give something back to the community also with the tours because the tourism business brings money also to the local community, especially the way we do that. Uh, so really stay local, eat local uh, and uh, genuine interaction with people. So that's something that, of course, has uh, an economic return for the local communities. But for those who want to go a little bit uh, deeper and to stay a bit longer, we offer the volunteer programs in the Pankisi Valley, which is this uh, valley in Georgia inhabited by uh, a Chechen minority. And uh, also a volunteer program in Moldova, in southern Moldova, in Gagausia, which is a Turkish-speaking autonomous region. And these are places where I stayed personally for a long time, and I know the, the, the volunteering organization working there. So, yes, something that was uh, really important for, for me to have uh, as an offer on the website. One question I wanted to ask you was what sort of people go on your tours? 
Yes, that's a very interesting question because uh, there are basically, if we want to summarize mm, the people that join my tours, uh, uh, we can say there are three different uh, categories of people. So the first uh, category, which uh, to be honest is the one I like the most, uh, is uh, made up of made up of people that are genuinely and uh, also deeply interested in the countries, in the regions they are traveling to, and uh, they are interested for cultural reason, for historical reason, architectural reasons, for many different aspects. And usually, these kind of people desire have the wish to spend as much time as possible as, as possible in these places and to learn as much as possible while staying in these places. Then another uh, group, another batch of clients is made out of those uh, who are, can be called, uh, I mean, they label themselves as that, so I think it's okay to to call them country collectors, so people that traveling to that are traveling to weird and obscure places, just to just to say, oh, I've been there, and uh, so usually these people uh, take private tours with us. They usually spend less time than our standard tours in the countries and places they are traveling to. And the main reason behind that is just to say, oh, I've been to this place. So, yeah, country collectors. It's a community out there in the internet. There are a few people out there, at least uh, 200 people that have been uh, to every country in the world. So there are nine, nine, uh, 193 countries out there, plus uh, some unrecognized countries. And these people have been to each of them. And those are called country collectors. And uh, the third batch of people is those uh, who are interested in the places uh, I offer, but don't know much about them. They are just intrigued by the fact that uh, they are unusual, and they just want to discover them, even if they don't have a previous interest. So maybe they are interested to go to Siberia, but they don't know anything about Siberia and they just want to discover Siberia. And this batch of people is also very, very, very interesting because they are, is, is made out of people that I usually reach via my social network. So they see my social channels, so uh, social media channels. So they see these posts about places they have never heard about and they become intrigued. What would you say is your favorite region of the former Soviet Union? Well, definitely the Caucasus, because uh, it's so beautiful from a landscape point of view, so diverse from a cultural and ethnical point of view, ethnic point of view, so fascinating from an historical point of view, and uh, just uh, charming uh, from an architectural and uh, also monumental point of view there are so many things to see so many different architectural styles so many different monuments and buildings from the soviet from the pre-soviet era from the traditional uh, architectural style of georgian houses azerbaijani houses dagestani house, houses uh, 
and palaces and then um, so many different uh, mosaic uh, from the Soviet era. And then it's just uh, food-wise, it's a great re- region of the former Soviet Union because the former Soviet Union is a super fascinating place, but it's not the first place uh, that comes up into mind when thinking about uh, culinary tours, like food tours, uh, especially because I'm Italian, so I'm really spoiled with food. And uh, yeah, the former Soviet Union is not like the first destination I would travel to just for food. Uh, yeah, they have uh, really interesting staples, but compared to, let's say, Italy, France, or Japan, uh, <clears throat> let's say it's another different category. But not the Caucasus. The Caucasus is really, really great food, really great traditional traditional staples. How can people find you, Gianluca? Well, you can find me uh, on my two main websites. One is uh, GianlucaPardelli.com, which is my photojournalist uh, and uh, journalism website. And the other one is uh, SovietTours.com, which is my tour company. And then on... uh, Instagram and Facebook at Soviet Tours. You just type in Soviet Tours and you should find me easy. And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, Todd Lemieux, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwallconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.